Greetings! Welcome to Beatles Stuffology, where two old friends sit about and talk BS, Beatles stuff, on a track-by-track -track basis pretty much for the sake of it. My name is JG Macquarie, and I'm here with my co-host Andrew Deacon. Say hi, Andrew. Hello, JG. How are you today? I am doing all right, thank you, today. How are you doing today? I, you know, I'm, okay, I'm conflicted because um, I've been told by our esteemed editor that perhaps we were a bit lacking enthusiasm for uh, uh, the episode of Can't Buy Me Love. Um, and yet, actually, I think I've got a bit of sickness, uh, which is worrying me. Uh, I've got um, a touch of second side sickness. So, dear listener, um, we are starting on the second side of, of Hard Day's Night. And, and I, I, it sort of occurred to me, this obviously, this is the third Beatles album that we're doing. And on all three so far, we've sort of flipped the disc and then hit a bunch of songs where I think you just kind of go, okay okay fair enough and uh, i think it's my mentality um whereby so first half of a play really enjoy absolutely fantastic um and then get to the interval and the second half is always more disappointing you think okay now all the plots going to evolve the characters are going to develop and there's normally just a rush to to get through things and you know i think we've, we've got a bit in our heart of hearts side two of both beatles albums so far it's a little bit they're both a little bit disappointing. I don't think that's an unfair um, judgment at all. Although for those of us more inclined of a science fiction basis, we would call that the Star Trek The Next Generation two-parter syndrome, where the first part tends to be great and the second part never really quite manages to convince in the same sort of way. But um, yeah, we're flipping over the disc and we're tackling side two of A Hard Day's Night. And that means that we have all the, uh, shall we say, pleasure? Yeah, let's go with pleasure. All the pleasure of covering any time at all. But just before we do that, um, it's our favourite section of the show, whereby if you also agree with us that we were a bit lacklustre and lacking enthusiasm <laughs> um, when it comes to Can't Buy Me Love, all oh, seamless transitions, how I love you so, then you can really get a hold of us. And you can contact us by email. We are beetlestuffology at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Beatles underscore ology. And you can find my blog at www.jgmacquarie.scott. And you can find Andrew's blog at www.stuffology.co.uk. Um, so, yeah, get in touch with us and just tell us how terribly lackadaisical we were when it came to the previous episode. But let's instead now focus on this one. So what are your feelings towards, uh, what are your feelings towards this one? Well, again, the usual caveat of um, even a half-decent Beatles song is better than um, a very good song by insert name of most other bands. Um, but, you know, I, I wonder if, if this song is, is something that we can officially title um, as one of the top 100 Beatles songs, for it is in the top 100 Beatles songs of all time, Beatly songy type thing at number ninety six on according to Rolling Stone magazine, which is uh, which is quite exciting. Um, until when you you sort of look at the uh, um, the other ones at the top or the bottom, as it were, of that hundred number a hundred being Hello Goodbye, which I quite like. Um, ninety nine being Yes It Is, which I don't really know. Um, number ninety eight Long Long Long, which I do like in a weird kind of way. And then 97, All I've Got To Do, which I really do like. And then we have Any Time At All, which seems a slightly kind of odd placing. And it does claim in the little write-up that comes with it, it says, never a hit, 
any time became a fan favourite. I don't know about you, but I've known a few Beatles fans in my time, but I've not heard anyone discuss it as being a fan favourite. And also, if it is a fan favourite, how come it's at number 96? Well, fan favourite and well-written song aren't necessarily synonyms of each other. It can still be a fan favourite and not be a necessarily great song, just just well-enjoyed. Um, but I don't think it would crack my top 100, if I'm being honest. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's I mean, the, the point you were making about the second side being uh, a step down from the first side, both on, on uh, this album and the last one, I think is, is worth taking a look at simply because obviously everything for the first side of this was written with a very specific purpose and everything on the second side of this is well i was gonna say isn't but that's not quite accurate it is it's just that the purposes fill up the album rather than you know provide these songs for this movie you're doing and you can tell that the sort of creative jolt i think that runs through the first side of this album um is really what animates it. They've, they've got drive, they've got ambition, they want to be able to do this. And I think that's reflected in the quality of the songwriting. Even the songs which are comparatively sort of, I mean, none of them are really tossed away, but you know, uh, I'm happy just to dance with you is, is, is probably the weakest of them. And it's still fine. Um, whereas when we flip it over and we, we kind of get through side two, I mean, we're not, I'm not going to into great, great detail at this point, but there's one straightforward classic and then there's the rest of the side and that's kind of it. And this is not the one which I would qualify as, as, as a straightforward classic. It's, it's fine. It's got some energy to it. It's got a bit of pep. It's got a little bit of spark to it, uh, but it doesn't quite have the same animating spirit or feeling of unity that I think you get from the songs in the first side. So I think evidence to uh, support your point of view um, for those of the Spotify generation, um, I am holding up now a copy of the vinyl, not original, uh, version of A Hard Day's Night. And as some of you may know, um, Tony Barrow wrote sleeve notes for the first few albums. Um, and quite often he would have written sort of little vignettes about each of the songs, which he does do on side one. Admittedly, not in, in huge detail. But then when we get to side two, it's almost like a justification about why the they're including these songs that weren't in um, the film itself and he manages to basically cover all of the songs in uh, i think two sentences <laughs> so you know for the main part well, the whole thing says paul handles the lyrics of things we said today and he's heard in in duet with john and i'll cry instead end sentence for the main part, John is the dominant voice, featured on any time at all. When I get home, you can't do that, and I'll be back, although George and Paul back up his efforts strongly on all titles. There you go. That's that's his summation of the individual songs on side two. Um, and, you know, there, there's a fair point to that. I mean, Ian MacDonald refers to this as being a song that was just basically knocked off either in, in Paris or New York, as in effectively a song that was written really, really quickly um, and probably not developed all that much either, uh, recorded towards the end of, of the sessions. Um, and it, you, you do get the feeling that it is something that was there in order to fill up the album, um, to be able to have something of album length in order to, to uh, be able to put out. So um, in terms of the evidence of that, I, I would maybe offer the fact that 
in my mind, the most memorable part of this is the um, is the chorus, the verses. I, I just don't think they really have any any kind of punch at all. And yet the chorus is something that grabs. And um, I've written a note that I need to ask you about. Um, and I'm just going to sort of bring my notes back up here because I think this is something that uh, we really ought to discuss because I can't remember why I wrote this. Here we go. Here's my question for you, JG. What is that guitar solo? Um, other than weak, I would suggest that what that guitar solo is, is another instance of um, finding a way to cover up something which is a bit perfunctory. Uh, which is to say, it's one of those uh, it's one of those solos where you have George Martin playing uh, piano in the background, and then George Harrison playing the same line over the top of it, and then the two are mixed together to give a a, a slightly for the time unconventional kind of sound to it. It's not wholly convincing. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Um, I mean, it's not a disaster. It it, it works well enough, I suppose. Um, on the Wikipedia page. And I think it's also in the Beatles Bible as well. Uh, it's pointed out um, that by the time this song was ready for uh, mixing, uh, the middle eight didn't have any words to it. And so that's how it is on the actual uh, finished song. It's just it's it's just unfinished. Um, that detail of the guitar solo obviously takes a little bit more time than just, oh, bugger it, we're done. But not an awful lot more time than that if the truth be told um it's funny the uh, overall the guitars in this kind of uh on this song are not great and yet it's got that lovely little final chord um which i assume is uh i think it's lennon because it's an electric guitar rather than a a 12 string or a classical um and it's just got, it's got a, it just brings the song to a lovely little close but overall there's a lot that's a little bit indistinct about this song. And I think that speaks to how much time was invested in it, which is to say not all that much. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, um, yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree. Um, I quite like the 12 string um, on it. Um, I think yep. it, it sort of works. It's quite, quite affecting, um, but it's just not one that, that lives um, that long in the memory. It is that case of written quickly, um, recorded um, reasonably quickly. I don't know what eight takes, something like that. And and it does sort of make you wonder just how much better it could have been if the Beatles had had taken a little bit more time to record. If the the um, you know the modus operandi had been to slave over albums in the way that you know some people may do these days. Although even then you suspect that actually what probably would have happened is that they would have combined two albums worth of material and a song like this perhaps would have got lost for, for something else that had come uh, come along for, say, I don't know, Beatles for Sale. You know, so I don't necessarily think this is a song that they would have completely um, honed until it was perfect because I think there's probably a limit to just how good it can actually be. Um, but I do think that, that that one of the reasons why this album is unusual is because it's so dominated by by John, and that means that some of these songs are going to be stretched a little. Some of the quality of the album is perhaps going to be stretched a little. Um, if you bear in mind that on the albums around it there are covers to make up the detail, and also um, you know when you get into the later albums, you're really talking about the Beatles having to come up with. I don't know what four songs a year 
per person, five songs a year per person. And that helps with the quality. So, yeah, they were producing some brilliant albums later on because they were you know, having two and a half songwriters in the band meant that they didn't have to slave over, you know, um, say Ray Davis, you know, trying to slave over 12 songs uh, for an album effectively on his own or Richards and, and Jagger having to slave over 12 songs, an album on their own. So, you know, having that, that, that kind of split role, I think, is really important in that respect. But it does mean that because the emphasis is on more on Lennon here, um, whether that's because McCartney didn't have the songs, they certainly didn't seem to make them into the studio, or whether it's just he was the more dominant voice, I don't know. But, you know, there's a bit more pressure on him, which means that there are some, some you know, some really high highs. Um, and there are some kind of more middling elements as well. And I'd say this is sort of stuck somewhere in between the um, the high highs and the middling elements. It's not there with I'm Happy Just to Dance With You, but it's not also, if you like, in my opinion, um, up there with I Should Have Known Better, which, you know, I still think is, is you know, a real grower on, on this album. Yeah, I mean, I think that... that... I think that is a really important point in terms of the number of, of songs that any one individual had to produce and the fact that this song went without a middle eight simply because the words weren't ready in time for it to be recorded. I mean, that, that in and of itself speaks to exactly what you're talking about. You know, it, it is that fact that it was just too much material. He just didn't get round to writing the middle eight. So, well, it's not there then. It's just it's just an instrumental package uh, uh, part, rather. And um, and that's fine. Um, but I think also there's a sloppiness to this song as well, which is at least a little bit unusual. Partly, um, I think that comes down to uh, that. You mentioned the verse, the music in the verse earlier on. It's a kind of fairly lazy kind of uh, shift between B minor, D and A. And uh, it, it's for, so for, the, uh, for the chorus, which gives a bit of pep. But then you, you're kind of sinking back into kind of like F sharp minors, B minors, G minors for the verse. It's all kind of fairly uninspired stuff. And the recording of the actual vocal as well, which is double tracked, but really double tracked again in a very kind of sloppy sort of way. So you can hear when Lennon comes in quite late on some of it, or you can hear where he slightly mistimes stuff or whatever. It, they haven't gone back to re-record it. They haven't gone back to um, fix any of the mistakes with punch-ins or whatever. And it it's just kind of left hanging out there. And it never seems like it's something it like, it's deliberate. He's not harmonizing with himself. He's just double tracking his own vocal, but not particularly well. And that that lends slightly sloppy feel to the song, which is, I mean, it's unusual for how tightly the, the, the Beatles are generally produced, but it also slightly works against the material that this, this song needs to be sharper. And sometimes that, that sloppiness can can really add to the feeling of a song. A lot of Ringo songs are quite sloppy, sloppily recorded. Um, like boys, for example, but that that adds to the charm. Whereas here, it actively detracts from it. And there's, yeah, again, it's just that feeling that there's just like nobody's all that invested in this song, and that kind of feels like a shame. So yeah, there is there is definitely that side of it. But yeah, there's just it's it's a lot for one person to produce, and you can't you can't get everything right. It's interesting that I mean, McDonald um, has this down as being recorded on the twenty seventh of February in sixty four, and yet they were still recording songs, admittedly after touring 
still recording songs for it in in April and then again in June. So there wasn't that um, urge to go back and to perfect anything. It's like, it's done, it's good enough, let's go, let's move on to something else. And recorded in in the same session as um, If I Fell as well. So, you know, there's, there's quite a little contrast there as to why they might really sort of go for something a little bit more polished on one um, and not the other. But it's also worth, I mean, I've, I've referred to both the Rolling Stones, you know, 100 uh, Greatest Beatles songs um, and McDonald. Um, there's, there's, a, there's sort of a contrast in, in the way both write about them. That's not exactly uncommon, um, is it? So um, when um, yeah, McDonald's writing about it, he's talking about the, um, um, you know, an unhappy sentiments of it. Um, okay, so the unhappy sentiments there, whereas the um, the Rolling Stone um, you know, article talks about the pledge of 24-hour devotion to a girl, with Lennon speaking his mind in a brash way that would have made Buddy Holly proud. Um, I think, okay, well, that's interesting. So it's, it's open-hearted um, and it's got unhappy sentiments. Um, yeah. Uh, take your pick, really. So basically, I think what we're saying is, you know, whatever your opinion of this song and its its focus, you can find someone who can agree with your views. Out of curiosity, how recent is that Rolling Stone article? Is it is it something comparatively recent, well, or because ah, uh, that's a really good question, and um, I've I've done a, a copy and paste uh, into a document because, um, frankly, I don't know if you've been on Rolling Stone's website. Um, but every time I go on it, it basically does horrible things to my computer and it, it crashes the browser, um, mostly because of its um, ideological uh, attachment to random adverts. Um, this was published in, I've just loaded up just for you, so if you lose the call, you'll know why. Um, oh, there you go. There goes there goes Chrome. Uh, let's try that again one last time. Um, April twenty twenty. Okay, that's very interesting. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Good. Yeah. Th- th- it's one of the things that I think the way that people talk about the Beatles has shifted so much since Revolution in the Head was published. You know, it is such a such a key text, such an important part of of Beatles analysis. But there's been so much water under the bridge since uh ian mcdonald's book was published that it 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 sometimes can't help but feel um not reactionary that's not quite the right word but it 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 feels a bit kind of it's it's just clearly first wave of that 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 kind of critic criticism capital c criticism um which is directed at the beatles and there's been so much material which has been been written since and and i don't mean this in any way to sound disrespectful but but often better as well um but so much of what has been written subsequently needs to have revolution in the head there as that kind of foundation on which a lot of the sort of second and third wave kind of beatles criticism is built upon and i think those kind of differences where you have like say for example the rolling stone uh, article focusing on one side of the the lyric and mcdonald focusing on the other i think that's one of the ideal um kind of examples on it because really ideally if you want to take a piece of um criticism which is going to address the song 
then uh you know what you want to be able to do is to be able to um keep going with both sides of that and then kind of reach one kind of conclusion both of those feel relatively slight in terms of their uh, in terms of their analysis what you what you need is something which will bring them together uh in the case of rolling stone that's understandable because you know it's rolling stone but um but there are so many beatles books which can which can achieve so much more than that now so i think it is interesting to to kind of bear in mind the different periods in which these kind of uh, critiques are being written well, if we're going to delve into the realms of historiography uh, there, JG, um, it's also worth considering the brand new form of criticism in the form of, I don't know if you've heard of them, uh, these podcasts. Um, there's there's quite a few of these podcasts around. Mm. Um, and and they, they offer new and interesting insights into the world of, uh, of the Beatles. Um, you know, obviously we're just a, just a small part of that, but, um, you know, there, there are a fair few really interesting podcasts who are diving into the, those details and critiquing Ian McDonald in a way that perhaps, um, you know, he wouldn't have considered possible himself because obviously, you know, he's putting forward his text as being um, authoritative. And, you know, having been a writer for NME, perhaps um, he might challenge the assertion that, that you know, poor humble personages such as us would have an opinion uh, alongside an esteemed journalist with all their journalistic contacts but yeah here we are well, there's there's a reason we start at the top of this show is describing ourselves as being full of bs so that's that's fine um i mean I, it is one of those those things in the way that the um this is going to sound incredibly pretentious, so I apologize in advance. But 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 the democratization of opinion that podcasts allow it does mean that uh, a lot of the kind of conventional wisdom can be challenged. Now that can be incredibly valuable, especially I think one of the great things about listening to you know quite a few Beatles podcasts is that they tend to be very. When I say supportive, I don't mean supportive of each other, but there, it, there's there's a generally a very goodwill towards uh both the band and towards other people's opinions so it's possible to have disagreement or alternative perspectives without it just becoming like a typical internet slanging match and i think that's incredibly uh pleasing it's one of the reasons i really like listening to other beatles podcasts um but i think it also helps to show up um certain limitations so if you take something like um ian mcdonald like one of the one of the two things well, i would say there's two things that make that book seem very old-fashioned now one is the general hostility towards george harrison and two is the general hostility towards yoko ono both of those things are feel very much of the 90s they feel like something that that um, sort of Beatles criticism has long, long moved past at this point. George Harrison can be acknowledged as a good guitarist and a good songwriter, even if he wasn't always. And and the whole Yoko thing is, you know, we're we're just past that now. Um, and and I I really love the fact that that podcasts have kind of helped to disseminate that as 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 points of view and and to challenge the kind of the orthodoxy of of those kind of things from criti critics like Ian McDonald. And I don't mean again, I don't mean that to sound derogatory. Like you couldn't have a lot of the work which has come subsequently without him i mean you obviously you have lucian as well and that's a whole chunk of criticism and, and analysis which which is a whole separate conversation um but i think it's really i think it's really heartening the way that that these discussions can carry on and that we, you know i mean you and i are still doing it plenty of other people are still doing it and it's 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 all rather joyful really yeah i mean 
the the big beagle sort out um is is an interesting one because they're they're currently doing the singles and b-sides of the well the fact by the time this episode goes out they would finish doing that series on the singles and and b-sides of the the beagles in their solo capacity um in particular in in the 70s um and I think if at the moment they've still got uh, a Yoko Ono song in in the top ten, um, and they were surprised having gone through that process of listening to all of those, actually just how good uh, some of Yoko Ono's um, material actually is, which um, you know is fair enough. I, I mean, I only remember listening to um, you know, my nan had Double Fantasy and not really being able at age of eight, nine, ten to be able to access that material in any way shape or form so that's something that perhaps i should go back and have a look at and certainly that series has been interesting for introducing me to a whole load of george harrison releases singles and b-sides of which i wasn't aware mostly because they didn't sell and you know he wasn't perhaps as lauded so you know it's useful that people are finding a way to go back and to, to review um those materials even if i do vehemently disagree with them on on the quality of ding dong which frankly i think is a masterpiece <laughs> uh, so big beagles sort out if you're listening to this go back re reappraise your view of uh of ding dong um not only is it by far the best new year's eve song ever um i'd say it's it's yeah i'd, I'd say it's possibly up there with with any of the beatles festive songs but uh that's controversy for another day. And do you know what all of this tells us? This diversion into uh, historiography and, and the like. It tells us that we really don't have much more to say about this song, do we? I don't think that we probably do. So shall we just give it a, go and wrap this up before we manage to wander completely off piste? So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that it's it's um, it's perfectly fine. Um, and for any of our listeners who've been playing JG uh, Bingo, um, we've had Pep, Perfunctory and Pretentious. So we've almost certainly had all the P's that were on your scorecard, folks. Excellent. I'm very happy that you've been keeping track. That just makes me full of uh, full of joy and happiness. Right, what are you giving this one? Oh, um, oh, I don't know. It's it's going to be a six, isn't it? Because it's and and actually worth pointing out that that when we get to the end of this album, we we've started talking about going back and reappraising. So I'm scoring it how it fits in with some of the other songs at the moment. But I suspect if I come to reappraise it and and think again about the fact that we've got scores out of 10, um, you know, because I suspect I'm going to gonna try and argue in favour of scores out of 10 being with zero being the worst Beatles song and 10 being the best Beatles song, um, yeah, which is criteria that we've not really discussed. I suspect it's going to more be like four or five under the, the reframed scoring system. However, at the moment... It sits quite comfortably alongside um, several of those other six out of ten songs. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to give it as well. Uh, I think it's all right. It's fine. It's got a bit of energy um, to kick off side two, but there's not an awful lot more to it than what it is. It's it's fine. It's a bit it's a bit sloppy, but uh, let's see what else did I give six to? I'm happy just to dance with you, this boy. Uh, Rollover Beethoven and Little Child. Yeah, oh yeah, that works. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Six out of ten for me as well. We are agreed. 
<laughs> well, yeah, it's a, it's a minor miracle. Right, good. Well, just to repeat what we said at the top of the show, uh, you can get a hold of us um, at Beatlesstuffology at gmail.com, Twitter at Beatles underscore ology, and you can find my blog at www.jgmacquarie.scott and Andrews at stuffology.co.uk. Please also check out my other podcast, which is Talking Trek to You, where a noob and an expert, me apparently, go through the original Star Trek series episode by episode. Please like, rate, and review us on whatever podcatcher you're using uh, so that more people can find the show because we love people being able to find the show. Although saying that, you might not want to for the next episode because the next episode is going to be I'll Cry Instead. But no, no, I've, I've got loads of brilliant stuff for the next episode. Oh, all right. no, no, all right. it's, it's going to be fantastic. <laughs> I've been corrected. I've been corrected. All right. Definitely tune in for the next episode, folks, regardless of the quality of the material that we're discussing, because Andrew's got lots to say about it. That's a good enough reason for anyone. So we'll wrap it up there. And until then, keep listening.